I'm the boss. <laughs> you are the boss. <laughs> the Bruce Springsteen of the podcast <laughs> world. Welcome to a brand new episode of Not Another Whiskey Podcast, the show where we talk a lot about whiskey and a little about life, where we enjoy a dram, good time, and more importantly, we get to have a laugh while doing it. I'm Nicholas Polacki, and I'm back today with the man who's known as the Speyside Sipper, Mr. Mitch Bouchard. Hold for applause. Mitch, how are you? <laughs> I didn't hear any applause there. What the fuck? Uh, <laughs> well, that put that on you, mate. <laughs> that yeah, was your I'll, opportunity. I'll, I'll... I'll put that in the edit and just chuck some in there. Quite right, quite right. <laughs> all of that's in post. Put it all in post. Exactly, mate, exactly. What's going on? Oh, good, man. Another episode. Here we go. Let's get this show on the road. I'm not going to lie, Nicholas. I'm a little bit on the hangover side. Let's call it excessive <laughs> brand loyalty to whiskey last night. Um, you look like it. I do, right? <laughs> I mean, it was it was quite a big night. Um I woke up this morning. I was like, "Whoa, yeah, I was drinking last night. That was a big one." Yeah, yeah. Well, it's all just kicked off here. Spirit of Space. I just started last night, so I went along with my good friends from the Downs Hotel uh, up here in Avalour, and uh, they kindly gave me a seat at the their table. So yeah, it was kind of the who's who of the whiskey business. There was about three hundred and fifty people there um, up at Dallas Dew Distillery. Uh, so yeah, great night. A lot of fun. Um, they did have a bottle of whiskey on the table, which we didn't touch during the meal, but we did have quite a few other drams and a couple of beers as well. So upon leaving, I decided to grab the bottle of whiskey and we drank about maybe three quarters of it in the taxi on the way home. The taxi ride was only 40 minutes. So good times, mate. There you go. I'm just back from a three-day drinking extravaganza across the northeast. So I was up in Massachusetts and Connecticut last three days. Brilliant tastings out with the did a cracking masterclass with Burlington Wine and Spirits up in Massachusetts, which was a blast. And went to see the guys at Yankee Spirits in Sturbridge, which was brilliant as well. And then we, uh, last night I was doing a tasting with uh, Julio's in Westboro, and it was just killer. Just a lot of really good people that came out and really like talk about whiskey geeks that want to get right into the thick of things. So that was kind of fun. Nice. And then man. on my well, way back down, what was that? I was going to say you're looking a lot fresher than me. That's for sure for drinking for three days. Well, <laughs> well, I'm well rested, and and uh, do you know what? I didn't go to the gym. This that's really strange. You know, Mitch, I'm trying to stay kind of clean and healthy for when I'm not on the road. Yeah. But when I'm on the road, I really struggle to do anything. That's just not like you go to bed late. You, I'm up with the birds no matter what, so I'm up at six in the morning, six thirty usually. Yeah. And then it's just a full. I just can't. Nothing worse than trying to go to the gym at six o'clock when you've had a few drinks the night before. No, totally, mate. Yeah. Well, you have to do it though. I mean, I, I kind of just force myself to do it. The cool thing I'm doing now as well is I don't know if I've, we've talked about this yet on the on the podcast, but I've actually got a cask that I got from Speyside Cooperage, and I fill that with cold water. And obviously, right now it's I think it was minus four here last night. That's in centigrade, and uh, I jump in that first thing in the morning for three minutes. Really? Yeah. <laughs> cold water therapy, mate. And it's great because the nuts. water actually does smell, you know, that, that obviously it, it's, it's a, the, the, the cask they gave me was a shaved cask on the inside. So yeah. you leave the water in it for about four days and you almost, it smells a little bit like whiskey. You get that nice 
sort of vanillin note coming through of it. So you jump out and you smell a little bit like whiskey, which is, which is kind of cool. That's my new jam right now. A little bit there of uh, water therapy. Uh, and you're still is... doing like mountain bike. You send me these pictures. You know, it looks like you're like mountain biking around Space Aid and stuff as well. Is that still? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doing a lot of biking around here. I mean, the weather's turned shit this week, though. It was amazing last week, and this week it's just been awful. Uh, not great for the, the the festival that's just started because people listening, there's probably a lot of you have been up to the Speyside Whiskey Festival before. You know, it goes on for, I think it's about six or seven days, and there's a lot of uh, events, and I think it's about 350 events this year. And uh, a lot of that's based outside. So it's not great that we've got crappy weather. Um, but anyway, it's it's all good. And then today as well, man. Oh, yeah, I did another whiskey thing today. Um, so before we recorded this during the day, I, I kindly got invited down to the Cairn Distillery. Uh, and they put on an amazing lunch. And I, I saw that. And that's a really interesting distillery. It only opened last year. Gordon McPhail uh, run it. And um, they're doing this because it's Gordon McPhail and they've got so much liquid, they've done well, several actually different types of whiskey there on how they predict the whiskey is going to taste, which is kind of cool. So I tasted through their 12, 18, and 25-year-old, uh, all blended malts, and they go up to a 70-year-old blended malt. Uh, and I believe it's the oldest blended malt in the world. So that was kind of cool. cool seeing that, like really nice take on a modern distillery that they've done. Uh, and that sits just north of Aviemore in Granton-upon-Space. So again, another one to to check out if anyone's up in this neck of the woods. And thank you very much, guys, for for having me along. Um, cool. And another thank you, and I think I mentioned this on the last last show, is what I'm going to be drinking uh, this uh, this episode, mate. So I mentioned the King's Farms. sent you something now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we'll get onto that later on. And I, I have had a few nice whiskeys sent to me recently, which we'll get onto on another show. But one of the things that I haven't talked about is this beautiful bottle of Kings Barnes that was sent to me. Um, and I think we talked about it on the last episode, maybe. They also sent a, a personalized, not another whiskey podcast um, hip flask, which yeah. was kind of cool. But I wanted to talk about this Kings Barnes because I cracked it for the first time the other day and it is absolutely stunning, which. You know, I've tried so many of their whiskeys. I don't know if you've had any Kings Barnes yet, Nicholas, because I'm not yet. Not, I'm not sure if they're over in the US actually. Um I've not seen them yet. Amazing little distillery just uh, outside of St Andrews, and um, kind of really cool sort of history to this. Kind of one of the new old distilleries, I suppose. I, I, I think it's 2015 when they started up, but they sent me the uh, their new flagship single malt, which is called the Ducat. Now, for anyone who's not Scottish, you may not know what Duca is. Duca is the, uh, translates to a dovecot. So when they built this distillery, it was on a, a, an old farm in Fife. And the Duca there is like the center stage of the distillery where they keep their first ever cask that they filled, which was in March 2015. So uh, the, this is the, the King's Barnes Duca, which is a kind of tip their hat to, to this part of the distillery. Uh, X bourbon and X STR wine barrel, uh, sorry, wine barriques, 46% ABV, non-chill filtered. And this is stunning, man. I, you know, it's, it's very much this lowland style of whiskey. Um, you know, there's some nice rich fruits in there. There's a really nice vanilla punch coming through, uh, for 46, it's very smooth. And obviously, you know, being only opened in 2015, 
they, they it's not got an age statement on it, but it it drinks really, really nicely and really smooth. So thank you, Kings Barnes, for sending me that. Nicholas, when you come over here, I shall leave some in the bottle for you to try as well when you get your ass mm -hmm. to Scotland. <laughs> A likely story. I I'm not I don't fancy my chances of there being anything left there, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> uh, I've got a nice little glass. Actually, it was a beautiful little drop of old Pulteney that I was drinking earlier, the 12-year-old. It's nice. a bottle. I've had it for a long time. And it's just a nice little drop from Wick in Scotland, which actually had a longer prohibition. One of the longest prohibitions in the world. You know this? I did not. So prohibition in the States is a fraction of the time. There's a, just, just in Wick in Scotland, there was a prohibition period that outlasted all of it. I need to look up that. I actually didn't look up that story, but like I remember I met Malcolm, the, the whiskey maker there, and uh, he was like, oh, yeah, I told this story at a whiskey festival, and it just it always stuck with me. I was like, really? Yeah, I looked up at the time, but yeah, it was like 20 years or something like that, like a prohibition. So I'm gonna, I'm actually going to be going up there soon in a couple of weeks, and uh, our friends at Eight Doors have invited me around, so we're going to get a, a little a little sound bite from those guys and see what they're doing. I think they're the most northerly distillery on the mainland of Scotland now, uh, all the way up at John O'Groats. So that'll be cool go, to go, kind go. of hear what they're up to. All right, Mitch. Well, we've got a cracker of a show ahead. Uh, we've got some whiskey news, which we'll dive into here, as well as a little cheeky guest who's going to join us in the middle of it all. So let's crack on with what's been going on in the whiskey world. And first up, Mitch, probably some of the biggest news affecting the industry is that First Minister Humza Yousaf the head of the SNP slush fund government uh, has delayed the botched rollout of the bottle return scheme in Scotland until March of next year. Yes. Now, I live in the States, so I'm just being a little bit cheeky here, but I can only assume this is because that they've been busy trying to explain off how they've been using Scottish taxpayer money to buy luxury camper vans for its finance chief rather than actually creating policies to strengthen Scotland's most famous export what are your thoughts on this one, Mitch? You, you're a little bit closer to obviously being there. I mean, I'm I'm just so glad that they've they've pushed this back. I'm hoping it's going to get scrapped. Um, you know, we've chatted about this on the show before, and for those that haven't listened to the Billy Walker episode that we just released last week, have a listen to that. He puts his two cents in on this, which is really interesting to hear. You know, yeah. someone who's so big within the whiskey industry talk about this. Um, you know. Uh, I, I think it's a good thing, but they need to have a look at whether glass needs to be part of it. I also think that it's it will be good if the whole UK comes in, which I, I think is the plan for 2025. So I'm not quite sure why they wanted to push this forward just for Scotland. Um, but yeah, I'm, I, I know there was a lot of, of people very, very nervous about this, and I'm sure they're going to be very relieved that it's been delayed. And I'm sure they're going to be hoping that it's going to be delayed even more uh, once we get to that point. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Mitch, you sent me a little story this morning, which I thought was a great read about Scottish rye whiskey and some other new releases. Uh, I'm guessing this is just a laundry list of whiskeys that folks are sending you and that I'll never get to see the light of day. But what's new and what's tasty? What, what, are, you, what are you reading about? What are you seeing? Yeah, I mean, well, the first thing that caught my eye was a distillery that I visited probably about three, four years ago. And it's maybe one that, that people haven't really heard of because they've been flying under the radar and it's Inch Derny. And uh, they're based in Glenrothes in Fife. A really interesting distillery to go around. Uh, Scott Snedden, who's the distillery manager, showed me around this, like I say, maybe three, four years ago. And they've released a rye whiskey. Now, this isn't the first 
Scotch whiskey that is made from rye. Uh, I know our Beaky did one. Uh, I want to say that was like 2019, 2020. Um, so there is already a Scottish rye out there. This is 46.3% ABV, made up of 53% malted rye and 47% malted barley. Uh, and one of the things that they that, that Scotts talks about is this Mirura, I think that's how you pronounce it, mash filter. And it's only one of two used in Scotland. And what this manages them to, to achieve is because of this mash filter, they can process the rye at a higher level. Uh, so I haven't tried this yet, Nicholas. This isn't uh, a whiskey that was sent to me. I just saw it, but stunning looking bottle looks really cool. Scott, if you're listening, it's been a while since we've chatted, send me a bottle, mate. I want to try this and see what's going on with it. It's, I mean, it's Game not cheap. Big. It's, it's, it's 110 pounds for a bottle. So, uh, you know, this is, uh, this is up there. Uh, they're going for whiskey exchange. They're saying here's going to stock it, uh, whiskey shop, Selfridges, Luvians and specialty drinks. So yeah, it'll be interesting to to try this. I'm sure I'll try it. And I don't know, I, you've, what are you, what's your opinion on rye, Nicholas? Well, actually, I, I was fascinated. Uh, you know, when we we're talking to to the guys, um, obviously about different varieties of rye from around the world. Yeah. Um, you know, when you look at Finnish rye and hearing about the the the, the kind of sweeter, lighter styles of of that grain here. What we usually see in the States is that kind of American rye, Canadian rye, a little bit more kind of peppery notes and things like that. I think it'll be really interesting to see. I actually was was interested just even in the still. It was a Lomond Hill still, which mm. is very, I mean, I've I've really not tasted whiskeys from a Lomond Hill still before that I can recall, um, which is, for all intents and purposes, a copper pot still that's got plates attached to it that allows very, very accurate pools. It's a, is it is a continuous distillation process, I think, as well, that they seem to be running through on it. But I, I need to do a wee bit of digging on that. It seemed quite interesting. But yeah, have you, sure. you know any other whiskeys that use the Loman Hill still? Uh, couldn't think no. of anything else. The only one I think that, that runs it is Scapa, but I think they've taken all the plates out, so they just run it as a copper pot still. But if anyone does know, oh, yeah. then there give us a go. shout. Let us know. We want to hear from you, as yeah. always. Not another whiskey podcast on Instagram. <laughs> Fun <laughs> enough, it was it was it was in, it was created by um actually just because um Billy Walker was mentioning this, but for because he worked for Herm Walker as well, but it was actually created by somebody that worked in distillation for Herm Walker, a guy called Alistair Cunningham. So it was used for batch distillation, like a pot still, but mm. it's three perforated plates which can be cooled independent independently, which help control reflux throughout the entire still and apparatus, kind of similar to like a coffee still. Um, I mean, it's it's super geeky. When I was there with Scott, uh, you know, it was we went pretty pretty deep with it all. Um, it's been a while. I need to dig out some notes, or maybe just get Scott on the on the podcast here to chat about it because it's it's interesting stuff they're doing at Inch Derny for sure. Yeah, cool. And actually, you're right. So Lomond, Loch Lomond Distillery has them. Glenburgie has them. Milton Duff has them. Inverleven has it. And Scapa, you were correct, Mitch. Is the other one. And in 2010, Brucladi Distillery installed the original still salvaged from the demolished in Verleven Distillery. And in 2015, new Loch Lomond stills were installed in, in Derny. So, yeah. Cool. There you go. Right. Googling at its finest there, Nicholas. Well done. There you go. Googling. Um, that was just recall. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to go back to Spirit of Spaceside because talking about new releases, there has been a bucket load uh, literally today, 
So this, this is hot off the press stuff that we're giving you guys. Um, so Glenn Farkless, I just tried it. They have selected a 2002 First Hill Sherry. It's 54.3%, limited to only 636 bottles. Uh, I just tried it literally 10 minutes ago, uh, 220 pounds. It's good, as most things are from Glenn Farkless. I was actually chatting to Callum, the distillery manager, last night, and he's going to come on the show. He's always great value. We might have to edit some of the stuff he's, he says out, though, because he can get a little bit risky at times. <laughs> he, he's pretty <laughs> funny. Our friends up at Glen Allocky as well, going back to Billy Walker, they've brought out three exclusive bottlings for the UK, but to coincide with Spirit of Speyside. So they've got a 2010 Oloroso Punchin that's come out a 2009 PX Hogshead, and a 2008 Chinkapin barrel. Uh, so I was chatting to them about this, uh, to Ronan, and I was asking him what his favorite is, and he said the, I think he said the PX was was his favorite, so I might have to nip up there since it's just up the road and grab a wee bottle of that. Is and that then on... it's punching above its weight. Oh, fuck's sake, honestly. <laughs> How many cards do I have to give you for these dad jokes, mate? <laughs> and then Glenn Fiddick has brought out two releases as well. So both 2011 bottlings. Um, and one of them is a Madeira cask, which is pretty cool. 190 bottles of that, 63% ABV. These are both at £200 a bottle. Uh, and the other one is, again, like I said, a, a 2011, but this, get this, Nicholas, this is a non-sherry European oak butt. Uh, and they're apparently very new butts. I know you like new butts, but they're very unusual. I like big butts. That, <laughs> in that they're, stop it, they're uh, European oak uh, and have a distinctly sherried character, apparently, but they've never held any sherry. They're saying the vast majority of the aroma and flavor of a sherry, but comes from the oak rather than the sherry. And this is firsthand evidence of that. So kind of controversial. And this is interesting because I know Brian Kinsman talks about this a lot in that the sherry doesn't influence the, the cask and it's more to do with the oak type. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that's that, that would be cool to see that. And like I say, well, that one, there's only 100, 190 bottles as well uh, with that. And that's only available from the distillery again, because it's a uh, spirit of space side bottling. So there you go. That's a list. And I'm sure there's going to be a load over the next couple of days coming out. Uh, I know Craig Ellicke always does a spirit of space side bottling. So it'll be cool to see that coming out. Uh, and the great thing is with me being here, I can run up to the distilleries and buy them. That's awesome. Actually, we, we need to look at getting Greg Glass on the show to talk to him about Oak. He really geeks out and, and spends a bit of time kind of geeking out and stuff like that. Uh, but it's kind of interesting to, to think about, uh, the wood and the sherry influence. Because I always thought that sherry, like people talk to me about whiskey, oh, it tastes like sherry. I'm like, it, it doesn't taste like sherry. Sherry tastes like oak. Whiskey tastes like oak. <laughs> like it's right. it's a different thing, right? It's pulling it's pulling the flavor profiles out of the wood. And then effectively the seasoning wines are leaving residual acidity and sugars and things like that in the wood that allows the, 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 the new make spirit from that will become whiskey to pull a different flavor profile out of the same wood. Um, so I think it's that's a really interesting concept though to think about that. God, mm. didn't McCallum just go buy a sherry house? They might have just blown thirty million for no reason. <laughs> they could have just bought the wood, saved themselves on the sherry. No, I'm sure. I'm sure all of these things play a part in the process. That's really cool, mate. Thanks for giving us a kind of rundown on that. Um, I was 
there's a piece of news that came across my desk that I was giggling away about just, it was just a Scotland story that just popped up because I've got different kind of alerts from Google and things that kind of anything that funny or cool that happens in Scotland, they kind of want to hear about it. And this was something that was picked up, not just on that alert, and then started to read it in the US news, which was kind of funny, but it's basically a story of uh, an ultra marathon runner in Scotland called Joasia. I'm going to butcher her last name, so my apologies up front, but Zakharzowski? Zakharzowski, I'm going to say. So Joasia Zakharzowski. She listens to the podcast all the time, mate. So she yeah, does. She's going to be angry. To be fair, she sounds about Scottish as Nicholas Polacki. Do you know what I mean? So, <laughs> uh, but Joasia is a Scottish ultra marathon runner. So these are for people who don't know what ultra marathon running is. These are people that run insane distances together, like four marathons back to back, hundred mile jaunts at a time, kind of thing. Except in this one, she ran the Great Britain ultra marathon from Manchester to Liverpool. Except halfway through. She was disqualified because she hopped into her pal's car for a couple of miles and finished third, accepted what? the medal, and then it was a G a G a GPS tracker at the end of all of this, kind of flagged up that she'd she'd basically done a, a mile or two right in the middle of it in under two minutes, <laughs> <laughs> and she had to kind of come forward and be like, "Oh, sorry about that." You'd have thought, like fundamentally, is there any other sport uh, that you would you would say, "Oh, yeah, this is what I'm doing," and then. Hop in the car to. <laughs> Man, that's to unbelievable. Out, out a couple o- of miles. Only some, only someone from Scotland would do that. You know what I mean, that's yeah. <laughs> uh, exactly. like yeah. You know, I, I actually swam from New York to Edinburgh once. So I did the front crawl into wow. business class and then landed six hours later. <laughs> did you get a medal for it? Guinness <laughs> <laughs> Book World Record. There you go. <laughs> Right. Well, listen, I'm going to change tact here a little bit because, um, you know, we you, you kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier on that we've got a guest on the show. Um, and again, I'm going to go back to Speyside here. And, and well, not, I suppose not just Speyside, but when we when we look at the history of Scotch whiskey, it's always fascinating to me because we've got all this sort of illicit uh, distilling that went on with all these smugglers. And there's all these amazing stories based around that. Uh, and one of the, the the things they're doing for Spirit of Speyside, and they did this last summer as well, but uh, they've got archaeologists that are up digging the site, the original Glenlivet site right now. Uh, and I, I was lucky enough to see it last summer, and I went up again the other day, and they're doing it again. And I, I, I got chatting to their head archaeologist, Derek Alexander. And Derek, just such a nice guy. Uh, we sat, we chatted, I recorded it. This is what he had to say. So, Derek, amazing to be here, um, just to kind of paint a picture to everyone listening. We're sitting in the Glen Livet estate. Uh, we're overlooking Ben Rinnis right now with the old Glen Livet site right behind us. And I'm sitting with what I like to call the, the Whiskey Indiana Jones. Derek, welcome to the show, man. <laughs> Thanks for having me. That that's was great. Good intro. You like that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I did say that to him before. He's like, yeah, everyone calls me that. So sorry for being so predictable. <laughs> no, but, no, okay. But Derek, I'm, you know, I, I was up here last summer and I saw what you guys were doing with regards to the dig. So can you just explain to everyone what you've been doing up here? So we're digging the original site of George Smith's distillery. So he set it up in 1824 in his farm uh, and it runs until 1859 when they opened the current distillery down the hill. It's then sort of abandoned and they move all the materials down there and you know to increase the scale of production. 
So the site is effectively abandoned as a distillery, and in fact, it's marked on the old maps. We know it was there because it says old distillery on the map, so even <laughs> I could find it. Um, so, I mean, many years ago, back in 1994, I came and did a, a survey of the site just to plan, map what was on the ground. And we've always wanted to do a bit of excavation, and we got a project together with the Glen Livet uh, called Pioneering Spirit, which is looking at the history and archaeology of early whisky making in Scotland. Um, and from the National Trust for Scotland's point of view, that's really good because it's a good national story. Uh, but we are out of state has, you know, we have about 1% of Scotland in our ownership. Um, so as part of the environmental charity. Uh, and on that estate, there are somewhere in the order of, there was 30 illicit whisky still bought these sites, but we've increased that up to about 40 now, and there will be more. So we've been excavating illicit bothy sites at Mar Lodge and Torridon and all these sort of places. But we've also decided to come and dig this site here at Glenlivet because it's a, it's a crossover between the illegal stuff and the legal stuff. So it's a really nice place to come and dig. And the good thing about it is um, because it's abandoned, you know, some it hasn't been built over. Many distilleries that you go to have expanded over time incrementally. And, you know, they're unrecognisable as how they were set out in the, you know, the mid or early 19th century. Um, so what's nice here is it hasn't been disturbed that much mm -hmm. and it's been demolished down to its foundations, but we can still work out how to plan. So we're excavating, to answer your question, having said that, we're excavating to find the foundations of the original distillery site. Beautiful. And, you know, when I was here last year, you pointed out the where you thought the still house was, and I see today you've been ex excavating even more to uncover essentially the whole length of the distillery, right? Yeah, yeah. so, you know, if you can imagine an old farm, it's set out in a courtyard format, so it's got a, a west range, a south range, and an east range, and it's open to the north, and it's facing, you know, the open end's facing sort of Ben Rennes and the, and the current distillery. Um, and we know that when he sets up the, the current distillery in 1859, it's also set in a courtyard form and it's described in detail. We know what the process is going all the way around that courtyard. And so our idea was, that, would it be the same here in the early distillery? I mean, I and it, we think it is from what we can see. So we've got the foundations, what we, for what we think might be the, the malt drying floors. We've got the still house, which is in the southeast corner of the distillery. We've got the furnaces. For heating the stills, and we've got three of those, so we think ones for the ones for the copper for the boiler, heating the water, ones for the wash still, and ones for the spirit stills. And then uh, upon excavation uh, out with that, and there's an area of uh, paving where they they where they would have kept the coal for shoveling it into the fires, effectively. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we've got the remains of uh, what we think sunken into the ground, uh, a, a, a complete vessel or vat that's at least 50 centimetres deep uh, sunken into the ground and the wood survives intact. Uh, we haven't opened it up again this year because you know the wood will degrade but it, so it's, it's so, still in sort of encased in the ground and we think that's the underback so for where the, the, the water that's come through the mash tun is gathered and allowed to cool before it goes into the wash tuns to turn it into, into, the, into wash basically the, you know fermented beer um, and then it's pumped into the into the the wash still itself. So we're getting the whole parts of the mm. process, and we've also got what we think are the remains of receivers, so cross um, beams for supporting vats. 
that could be inspected by the excisemen. And we found lots of nice artifacts as well, which has been great. Which is exact. Nice segue. Thank you very much, Derek. Because I saw some of them last year. So can you tell our listeners what you guys have found so far? So, I mean, we find enough. I mean, we found thousands of objects, a lot of which are relate to the farm. So lots of um, uh, glass and pottery and bottles and things but in amongst that there's, there, there are elements that relate to the whiskey making process so we've got off cuts of copper that are obviously patches and repairs we've got copper piping uh, we've got um, what we think are parts of pumps uh, so the plungers for for pumps because all the, the all this liquid is being pumped manually or probably water powered around the around the the, the circuit of the um the, the whiskey making process um, and uh, a valve, what we think is a, a part of a, a valve for closing off some of the tanks. And then we get some of the personal ornaments, uh, ornaments as well. So, yeah, uh, objects. So we're getting uh, lots of clay pipes uh, and lots of broken glasses, funnily enough. But not not whiskey glasses as we would think of them. No, wine glasses, Victorian wine glasses. Mm. But that's what they were drinking their, drinking their whiskey out of. Lots yeah. of them smashed. So maybe they were drinking a bit too much. We found a, a little <laughs> copper... What we think it's a dram cup, maybe a measure for, you know, at the end of the day or whatever. Or, you know, people were given a, a measure of whiskey each uh, day as part of their shift. Um, probably the best artifact, though, we got was a, a, a little brass uh, slider. And it had the word Gottlieb patent on it. And it's a, it's a slider from, when we checked it out online, it's a, a slider from a Gottlieb patent excise padlock. And this is a padlock that the excise office... Uh, had created for them and it, it's got a particular closing mechanism that allows the um, the exciseman to check that it's not been tampered with and this is a wee slider that would have gone and we found that at the far end of the of the process which we think is where the spirit still and the spirit safe was so that fits That's in amazing. beautifully with the story and you don't get artifacts like that very often yeah. so from an archaeology and in the same area we got a silver coin of George the Third. And that's George III's reign is, ends in 1820. And of course, the distillery here starts in 1824. And it's just a nice segue into it. It's fantastic. Nice. That's very cool. How exciting is it for, you know, when you're doing a, doing a dig and finding someone like that? Is everyone just going absolutely crazy? Yeah, it's, it's really good, you know what I mean? Because if you spend a lot of time as an archaeologist, you know, you move a lot of soil and shift a lot of dirt and pile up a lot of stones. So... You know, you're finding objects all the time, so you sort of get used to it. But when you find, you know, individual objects that have a date or a, an association with them or, or relate to a specific process, yeah, everybody gets excited, especially the whiskey side of things, because, you know, that, that, that's the reason we're here. So we'd like to find more of that sort of stuff, which would be brilliant. So, yeah, it's, it's a good place to work, and it's been a great, you know, it's been a great project. So you touched on this earlier, and the fact that this is, you know, a nice crossover between illicit distilling and legal distilling. Yeah. Obviously, when George Smith got his license in eighteen twenty-four, let's talk about some of the illicit stuff that you found elsewhere yeah. in Scotland. Has there been anything that's really got you your juices flowing? Well, you know what the thing that the contrast here is is the scale. You know, so we're when we're looking at this site. You know, we're looking at sort of large-scale production. The, the illicit sites are tiny; they're hidden away, um, and actually, the, the amount of artifacts that we're getting from those, and we've excavated about four so far, is really quite small. Um, so we're only getting, you know, one or two bottles with a bit, a, a bit of a clay pipe from one, 
uh, a, a beer bottle or a wine bottle that was probably being used uh, for, for whiskey in another one. Um, we've been taking soil samples to check if we're getting burnt grains of barley. We've taken hundreds of litres of soil samples. We've got one grain of burnt barley so far. But, you know, the, the best bit about them are the locations, because mm. the locations generally are fantastic. They're usually, you know, you can put your, you know, you, know, you can be in the shoes of an illicit whiskey maker quite easily when you're in those locations, because they're usually tucked out of the wind. They're hidden away beside a stream at the bottom of a waterfall. Um, you know, you can you can imagine guys sneaking up there just to sit in a wee bothy and uh, and make whiskey for a, for a week or so. So the artifacts we're not getting the same amount of stuff, but the stories are are really good and and it's nice it's nice to be out in the wider landscape looking at those sort of things. It's very much a landscape story. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's amazing the the work you guys are doing with the National Trust and bringing the whole whiskey part of it in yeah. um you know i imagine it's a, a bit of a passion project for you know you i think you're a bit of a whiskey drinker well right? yeah absolutely and you know what I, and i've had a long-standing interest in the archaeology of whiskey having visited this site way back in 1994 to do an initial survey of it that got me interested and i went to the end once i did the survey and you know checked out how well what is the whiskey making process and and then when i joined the national trust for scotland in 2000 one of our rangers took me to see an illicit whiskey site on, on, the, on the slopes of Ben Lomond and I thought, oh, that's really good. And it's, you know, so it's been a, it's been a project that's been bubbling in the back of my mind for many years. And I thought we must, must find a way to do this archaeology project. And people are more aware of it now. There's, there are, you know, there are groups of uh, volunteer and amateur archaeologists doing really good survey work across Scotland looking for illicit whiskey sites because they were so common. Everybody had mm-hmm. one. You really mm-hmm. every township probably had one because at one point it was a good way to convert excess agricultural produce into something transferable that you could either give as rent or you could sell to make money, which you then pays your rent. Of course as soon as you start making money on it it gets taxed, that drives it underground, then you get the whole smuggling trade and you know the stories around smuggling in Scotland are, are you know are huge but we wanted to tie it into specific sites you know so because a lot of those stories are very generic so you get the usual you know this happened here on the O and they they hid the barrel this way and all that sort of thing and it is good but very little is actually written about it and certainly nothing's written by the smugglers because they don't want anybody to find out do they um so it's you find out in the prosecutions so it's in the court records that all the detail is so the folk who were caught um so finding these, how you know the, the the archaeological traces in the in the landscape is a really good way to approach it because often these these are the places that don't have any documentary sources about it. But it, it's a nice thing that you know because they're usually associated with a township somewhere close by. So yeah, a great link to the landscape. That's amazing. Um, so. I noticed here you've got a big group of volunteers. Yeah. There's a, I think there's about 10 of you up yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, so, right? so it sort of varies between 10 to 15 of us sort of thing, yeah. So I know there's people listening right now that are probably going, how can I help you yeah. out with, I'd love to come on a dig and yeah, dig yeah, up yeah. some, yeah, some yeah. illicit yeah, stones yeah. in Scotland. Yeah. How can they get in contact with you guys? How can they sort of reach out and offer their, their help if they wanted to do that? Well, we do have... Um, we take volunteers all the time doing archaeological projects. We have uh, a, a website and a Twitter address and all that sort of, sort of thing. We run projects that range in archaeological terms from sort of public open days, you know, where people can come along and have a go at digging, to more specific targeted research excavations like this one here. And they usually last maybe for a week. We, we 
take a small group of uh, our regular volunteers who are you know, archaeologists who've been doing it for 10, 15 years and they come and help out and then we'll ask locals to come and help us as well. And that, that's, that's a model that has worked really well. Um, so if people want to get in touch, I mean, uh, we actually have a whiskey an email address, whiskey at nts.org.uk, which is related to this project. Uh, we're going to be digging uh, at uh, Ben Lors later in the year on the illicit site and Ben Lomond as well. Um, so if anybody's interested in coming and taking part, just drop me an email and we could yeah, see what we Fantastic. can do. Fantastic. And I'll put all those details on the bottom yeah, of this yeah, episode as well. You, so yeah. people can uh, reach out to you. But thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Welcome. Thanks nice. for having me. Yeah, and it's what a nice location. I know, it's not bad. <laughs> Good office, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mitch, that was another amazing interview, as always. Uh, thanks for bringing that to us all. Uh, is it cool for you to know that you're no longer the oldest relic in Speyside? <laughs> very good mate very good no it was cool though. i mean derek thank you so much for being on the show mate um really kind of interesting and like derek said there that you know there's 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 places where you can actually volunteer to go and join him they're always looking for volunteers so if you are a serious whiskey geek stroke indiana jones type person and want to do that uh we are going to put all the links at the bottom of the show you can click all them uh check them all out uh, contact Derek and go and do some digging for some illegal whiskey. As long as you don't end up digging up George Smith's family graveyard and all the bones. <laughs> I always feel I'm, I'm super addicted. This is something um, you might not know about me, Mitch, but I love a bit of Discovery Channel, a, lot, a bit of History Channel. I'm fascinated by ancient Egypt and all these other kind of ancient civilizations. And it always makes me think, so for those of you who don't know, the, the Egyptians and the pharaohs, fascinated by death their entire life was spent preparing for death like their entire life so all of all of traveling through to the next world was how these people dedicated their entire existence and spent what what would be in today's money you know trillions of dollars to build these like you know the 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 the, the sphinx and these these um um you know, the, the, the pyramids, pyramids to transport. Yeah, yeah, the pyramids. I throw me a bone here. <laughs> the pyramids to transport them effectively. That's what it was all about, right? To get them into the, the afterlife. And I always think, God, these people who were fascinated with death and committed all of their life to preparing for death. And then a couple of thousand years later, people just dig it up. Ah, right. well, don't care. <laughs> <laughs> like, absolutely no... No, no uh, rationale for it. We're just we, we're just going to go through it because it's interesting, and then we'll put it into a gallery. I'm like, uh, wow, we really didn't respect their last wishes at all. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway. there you go, guys. We've managed to cover uh, cheating in long distance running and uh, death in Egypt on yeah. this episode. So absolutely nothing to do with whiskey, but you know, we we like to bring you some variety here. <laughs> Is this you telling me off or deviating away from the plan? It's called Not Another Whiskey Podcast. <laughs> not at all, mate. Not at all. Um, but guys, again, thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed that that episode. Uh, what's the next one we're doing, Nicholas? What 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 are we dropping next week? It's going to be our friend Laura. Yes, Laura Rampling. Yes. Um, so really excited about that. As as you know, I'm a huge Glenrothes fan, so we were lucky to get Laura on the show. She's she was brilliant. Like I, I was one. We've not seen her since both you and I worked with Laura in the United States with William Grant and Sons, and then she moved back to Scotland. 
And it was just it was just so cool to hear her journey and how she's become this, you know, master blender of one of the most revered brands and and definitely one of the most exciting brands in the space right now for for creating new and exciting whiskies. So really cool. Absolutely. Yeah. So tune in next week, guys, uh, for that episode. But I'm gonna get to my bed and try and get rid of this hangover now. Oof. I'm done. I'm yeah, done, mate. You look you look done. Well, for those of you out there, thanks for tuning in. Please give us a follow on Instagram at not another whiskey podcast, as well as checking out our website and signing up to our newsletter at notanotherwhiskeypodcast.com. I'm Nicholas Polacki. He's Mitch Bouchard. He's off to bed. <laughs> and I'm away <laughs> to get a dram of whiskey. <laughs> thanks so much, guys. Cheers. Cheers, guys.